in uh, 1991, I volunteered to visit a predecessor of Hasbro Children's Hospital. I let the, uh, the person in charge of, of such visits know that I was a cartoonist and, and thought I might have some skills that could be applicable in, uh, in rooms with trying to cheer kids up uh, in the hospital setting. So luckily, the person I was approaching was a lady named B.J. Seabury who was a pioneer in the child life discipline in hospitals, trying to bring things into a hospital to help a kid feel like they could still be a kid instead of uh, necessarily a, a patient as their label. She thought a cartoonist sounded like a pretty good idea. Uh, and I told her, I said, I don't know, I don't know exactly how I'll be able to use my skills to, to be part of this show, but I, I, I want to try to figure it out. She said, you will figure it out. And she said, you could be a good, trustworthy man sitting next to a hospital bed here. You'll do more than you can imagine just by, by being that. And if you bring some, some fun with your cartooning, that's even better. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Today, I have Steve Brosnahan. He is the widowed husband of Diana Golden, who was my hero in adaptive skiing. I felt like I wanted to follow in her footsteps. I was lucky enough to try to follow in her footsteps, but also to meet Steve in the process. Steve is an incredibly amazing guy. This is probably something you've never heard. He is the resident cartoonist, the resident cartoonist at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. He's the cartoon guru at the Hole in the Wall Gang. He's the founder of Goodnight Lights. We're going to talk about that, which is an amazing thing. He's a mannequin enthusiast. He's a great friend. And Steve, welcome to Chris White Out Living It. Thanks, Chris. Great to see you. It's great to see you. It's great. I mean, we did, we were able to see each other last week, I believe it was. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I have to look at in your introduction, how does someone become a resident cartoonist? I have a friend here who was working on a documentary about the Lego master, the people who are competing to be a Lego master. Is there a competition to become the resident cartoonist. How does one become a resident cartoonist? Well, it, it happened uh, naturally and organically. Um, in uh, 1991, I volunteered to visit at Has uh, what was the pr uh, predecessor of Hasbro Children's Hospital, and I I let the uh, the person in charge of uh, of such visits know that I was a cartoonist and and thought I might have some skills that could be applicable in uh, in rooms uh with trying to cheer kids up uh in the hospital setting how did that conversation go i mean how do you how do you approach this and say hey by the way this is something i think could work in medicine so luckily the person i was approaching was a lady named bj seabury who was a pioneer in the child life discipline in hospitals trying to bring things into a hospital to help a kid feel like they could still be a kid instead of uh necessarily a, a patient as their label so she, luck, I just ran into the right person uh, by pure chance, and she was already bringing in um, all kinds of art type people, performance people to try to uh, make that hospital setting something other than what it had been up till then. 
And uh, she thought a cartoonist sounded like a pretty good idea. Uh, and I told her, I said, I don't know, I don't know exactly how I'll be able to use my skills to to be part of this show, but I I, I, I want to try to figure it out. And she said, you will figure it out. And she said, uh, if you you could be a good a good trustworthy man sitting next to a hospital bed here, you'll do more than you can imagine just by by being that. And if you bring some some fun with your cartooning, that's even better. One of the biggest things that I took out of that is that you found someone who would say yes mm -hmm. to something that was a little bit different and the yes. concern for the patients. How did you develop effectively your job description or, you know, because I mean, in some ways it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Like as a cartoonist, you had to develop your voice, mm -hmm. your image, your style, and you had to do that same thing, I'd imagine, with this job, didn't you? Yeah, I, uh, it, it helped that I, I I was prone to engaging people. Uh, I, I learned I learned how to engage people uh, during my college years. Uh, I was very shy going into the college years, but luckily I had a great experience that taught me the uh, uh, really the joy of just being able to step up, introduce myself, and and try to make a connection with someone. So. I had that kind of uh, interpersonal skill going in. What kind of techniques did you use for that? Because that is something that stymies a lot of us. Yeah. Well, for me, I still do use it. I, I walk into a room. I, I introduce myself and I say, I'm I'm a cartoonist. Uh, I draw things for people here. And I'm hoping that you give me a few minutes to let me show you what I can do. And that that introduction generally buys me at least five minutes where I can I can try to parlay the, you know, the, the general description that I'm a cartoonist into something that makes it, uh, makes a kid feel like, okay, this guy's worth keeping around for a bit. You know, let me see what else he can do. And the conversation really is uh, what's more important. The art, uh, yeah, it's fun. I, I have fun. I'm pretty good at drawing silly little things uh, pretty quickly, but um, yeah, that's, that's the main approach. I'm trying to get someone comfortable with the idea of give me a try and then proving that I'm worth a try. Cartoonist in some ways gives you a little bit of street cred. This is what I'm getting out of this. Yes. Oh, he sounds like he could be interesting. This is this is a different guy than I have experienced in the hospital. Okay, I'll give him a, I'll give him a moment. What's the moment like when you start drawing? Because drawing is something that is so different than almost anything i mean sort of like you're creating something from nothing that seems like it was on the page all all along or something my, my introductory drawing uh at this at this point in time is i like to take two animals that are nothing like each other and and make a new animal so the kid the the patient that i'm dealing with has has the the uh the fun of creating the assignment trying to stump me like there's no way he could do this and i feel very confident that i can make anything happen at this point and what surprises uh, a lot of patients is I, I just keep talking. I'm asking them questions about, you know, where they're from, what kind of pets they have, what they like, music questions while I'm drawing. So that in a few minutes, I finish the drawing, turn it around. And they're like, how did you do that while you were talking to me? I said, well, that's what I do, you know. <laughs> what have been the most difficult assignments? He said the kids are trying to stump you. Yeah. So when they start picking uh, microscopic creatures like uh, spotted nematodes, I, I got a problem with that. I'm still struggling with the axolotl as a, as a uh, you know, paired element. Uh, <laughs> but 
but I can figure it out. And if and if they ask for something so exotic, I don't know what it looks like, then they probably don't know what it looks like either. So I I can make it up. With some of these, are are you having to to look on your phone to figure out what these things look like to be able to do, or do you have an encyclopedic encyclopedic knowledge of what animals look like? I would give my myself uh, credit for the latter. I I do my best to keep phones completely out of the picture. I'm in fact. Part of my thing is to try to pull kids away from from screen or digital uh, entertainment, and that's the other the other thing I'm doing is I'm like, hey, I'm a person here. There's a, it's a good chance that if you and I spend a few minutes together, you're going to remember it better than uh, than some kind of digital alternative. And and that's it's the case, you know. The kids do appreciate a personal presence, a real presence in the room. The idea of being a cartoonist, I mean, that was not your original thought coming out of college, right? So coming out of college, you were going to be a reclamation architect, right? This was the this was the objective. It was it was coming out of college because that that made practical sense. And it's it's it is a, a field I'm very interested in. I live in an area where uh buildings are being re restored, uh repurposed. Um I love I love that work. And I actually did some of that work uh when I first got out of college. Uh, you know, physically did did the work as an apprentice carpenter. Um, so it made practical sense to pursue that kind of career. But what I always loved doing was drawing uh, things that would amuse people. So when when I started bogging down with the pursuit of uh, a restoration architecture, uh, I went back to what I loved doing. I, I think one of the things that's that's really I looked at and and okay. You decide you're going to be be a cartoonist, but you reached out and found some mentors. Mm -hmm. Your mentors were fairly on the huge side of mentors. <laughs> well, uh, I was fortunate that there were, uh, there, were, there were a couple of mentors that uh, were available at the time and uh, were very open to helping me out and was fortunate that way how did that work i mean because because don bosque was the first one you reached out to right who's a rhode island cartoonist yeah uh quahog right so this is yes this was in the uh the early 80s uh 84 he he had just become uh nationally published as the uh, yankee magazine's primary cartoonist and so he was he was flush with success he, he had made it and uh i was aware of it and and yet he still answered his own phone, uh, was up for a conversation and invited me to visit his home to show me how he did what he did and talk to me more about my own work and and encourage me. And uh, he's still a friend. I, I still check in with him every so often uh, just to keep in touch, but also to ask him questions that, that come up. One of the things that's often hard with artists is one one they do the art, you know, that's the that's the job in some ways. But then. But then the talking part, the uh, the the reaching out, the finding a mentor. I mean, you said that in college you started finding a way to create that conversation. Do you think that that's some of what made what differentiated you? Just in, I mean, in in finding a way to connect with someone who, for a lot of people, would be unapproachable as a result of the status. And the other one we'll get to more unapproachable in a second. You know what, in, Chris, in, I went into college uh, an insecure, self-conscious young man, but I met such 
incredible people. Even my freshman year, I just met kids that were motivated, that were looking past things that I was concerned about, just my appearance, how I presented. They seem to have x-ray vision. And I like that. And I said, I want to adopt that quality myself. And I watched them, uh, these, these peers, these friends uh, take on uh, projects. I just, you know, they think about something they want to do and they just go after it and do it. I said, my gosh, well, I guess I could do that too. I'm, I'm in their company. Why not? Why can't I be that guy? And when it came to approaching people, um, I lost my, my, um, awe or, or sense of intimidation by anyone, uh, even on campus when I was at school, I see people that occasionally would be visiting, you know, uh, some luminary type level people. But if I were in there within range, I introduced myself, I wanted to meet them. And I got over, I got over uh, a lifelong self-consciousness. Uh, it was one of the great things that college did for me. Well, and college, you talk about college, you went to Dartmouth College, which leads us to the second, the second mentor, because I mean, it, it is interesting. I think of a place like Dartmouth and, and you don't necessarily immediately think of cartoons. You know, you're not necessarily saying, okay, this is, you go to an Ivy League school to become a cartoonist, but obviously one of the most famous cartoonists, Dr. Seuss, went to Dartmouth as well. And you, and you reached out to him too. And what was that like to return to receive a response from Dr. Seuss? Uh, it was pretty darn exciting. Uh, <laughs> I, at the time I was, I was just rolling the dice on, uh, on, on who might be able to, to give me some advice and hoping for the best, uh, as I, I made approaches to people, but he was a, that was a natural, uh, Dartmouth celebrates Dr. Seuss in a big way for good reason and it's all right you know the alumni network should should be able to help me out with an address here and uh i i don't know i just thought i'm going to take a shot and who knows you know, i might just get a uh you know the, the kind of kind of rejection uh sort of thing you get from a magazine when you send a cartoon or something good good might happen and something more than good happened something great happened for me what did you include in that letter? You included some drawings too, didn't you? And how painstaking was that to to find the right drawings? Or were you saying, oh no, I've got to go back and create the right drawing for Dr. Seuss? And how does that work? Well, I hadn't I hadn't done a whole lot of uh of formal cartooning up till that point. Uh, uh I had done some some drawings that I shared with friends that I thought were the best representation of my skills and my humor at the time. So I said, all right, that's what I'm sending. You know, I, I can't reach back too far. I can't create new stuff. I'm just going to show him what I've been doing and hope hope it uh, hits the mark. And obviously he had a, an influence on you. Mm -hmm. As you're putting your drawings into an envelope and sending it to him, is there a self-conscious part of, because we learned so much from, from copying our heroes, right? That's how we effectively learn. But then we find our own voice and find our own way. And, and is was there that moment as you're sending something out to say, okay, is he going to be okay with that this looks similar to what he does? Or is he going to be flattered that it looks similar to what he does? So at the time, my work didn't look like, uh, it didn't didn't betray an influence. Uh, I, I was still kind of hacking away at what I thought things should look like. And... Um, I would. I don't think he would have perceived any any uh, 
um, honor honorary uh, 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 replication of his style. Uh, that came later for me as I matured more as a as an illustrator. Uh, I think I, I I brought more of his influence in, but at the time I was just whatever I had that looked looked like it's something I could present. That's what I sent. I keep there's something that keeps going through my head as you're talking about with the architect side, then then on the cartoon side, I keep having like a a Howard Rourke, Peter Keating kind of thing. So with with the Fountainhead with with Anne Rand, I don't know if you've ever read. The fountainhead, but but finding that voice, there's sort of a scene at the end where the guy who is the who is the architect who is who is assimilating all this like great architecture to make it look good, but not necessarily finding his true voice. He was trying to trying to paint, and he, and and the uh, the protagonist, the hero of the story, looked at him and said, "Well, you've you you've missed your you've missed your genius effectively. That you you've lost that. In some ways, do you feel like finding?" getting into cartoons have, have you found your genius there because you've done i mean i've looked at some of your other drawings i mean you go from like as realist as possible to tweaking and abstracting so that we're getting more of an emotional twist as well i you know i feel like uh there's been an, an evolution according to what i uh i i needed to do that as that has led to the to the style that that I'm I'm using at this point, you know, occasionally I still get to uh, to draw something more more serious or something that takes more time. But I think I think my greatest strength as a cartoonist at this point in my life is is being quick to apply my imagination to a visual result, and uh, that's the the skill that I I most use in, on a weekly uh basis and and i think the one that's most appreciated by the, the kids especially that i work with like they see things happen fast and how i can translate what what's going on up here with with my hand to make something happen so genius is a word i don't even get near i don't use that but <laughs> but i but i i know what i'm good at and at this point uh what i'm good at is is something that's very rewarding for me to uh to produce and and see the reaction in in especially a child that's in a hospital how does that work for you in some ways when you have the child right there you're talking to them you're under the gun like there's the deadline is right now whereas i've, I've heard you talk in the past that, that sometimes procrastination can seep into into a bigger project how does that inform who you are as an artist does does it give you more freedom do you find things that you might not have found otherwise in being forced to do some, something so quickly so it, it takes the pressure off because uh the the less thinking i do the 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 better the result uh it's, as far as what i'm what i'm uh, doing in the in the hospital setting i'm perfectly relaxed and uh you know getting an assignment from a, from a child you know it, it can be you know they can have expectations but um I'm confident that uh, as long as I don't overthink it, it's going to be just fine. And it, and it generally is. Because the objective is to connect with the kid. That's it. It's not yeah. to produce something for the Louvre or whatever, but the connection is, but, but it's also, I mean, that to me is something that's really important because <laughs> I felt like that as a ski racer. I mean, the less I was thinking about something, the less I had the expectations 
the anticipation, whatever, the more likely I was to perform at my best, you know, to, to create, I often talk about it, like creating like a child kind of thing. I like the, uh, the analogy with the athletics, because uh, for me as a, you know, uh, an, an aging, but still participating athlete, I, I think I'm at my best when I let uh, reflex take over and don't try to overthink what I'm doing with a, with a shot on a volleyball court or a tennis court and just feel what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I'm a better player when I do that. Well, and it's it really is the objective of being an athlete is to get to that point. It's kind of funny that it's sort of this cycle of life, right? I mean, it's kind of like you start as a little kid in the backyard and you don't care what anybody thinks. Like it's, you're just doing whatever you're doing and and it's all fun and there's no judgment. And, and then you get to the point where then there's the judgment and you're training and training to get back to that point of being like that kid and being free and being on muscle memory as well, where the head's like, hey, no, no, this is what differentiates us from the rest of the animals. And you're like, no, 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 like the muscles know what to do. Just let the muscles do what they're supposed to do. How has your evolution come? How, have you been able to watch your evolution, I guess is what I'm saying, as, as an artist? Do you surprise yourself? at times and go, wow, I didn't, I don't know where that came from. Yeah, actually, you know, that, that's something I find myself saying a lot. Uh, again, in the, in the hospital setting, someone, you know, a parent or, or a kid will say, I, I, where did that come from? You know, how the heck did you put those two things together and get that? And I said, you know, I can't even explain it. Uh, just that's what my imagination told me to do. And it's in the driver's seat when I'm doing this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, I, it's fun to get to that point. I really, I do feel like, you know, if I had anything to bring to uh, to this world when it comes to uh, skills that I could develop, uh, I like what I've, what I've been able to to uh, master as far as this little weird application of of, of art uh, in, a, in an unusual setting for art. And uh, I don't know, it feels good that I think I'm doing the right, the thing I'm supposed to be doing the way I'm supposed to be doing it in the right place. Have you had any particularly difficult patients, like the tough nuts, the crack kind of thing? And how did that play out? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I get those. I, uh, and in fact, so the toughest nuts to crack are the ones that don't want me at all. Like they, you know, I'm good. I got my phone or, you know, and I, I don't need, need it. And, and I have to, kind of bargain my way into the room for uh, just a chance to show a, a patient what I can do. And so you're in sales at this point. I mean, you're a sales in a way, in a way, uh, but I, but I, I'm pretty good at selling it too. It's like, listen, you know what? I'll be gone in no time. You won't even know I was here, but I'll, but I'll, I'll leave something cool behind. Trust me. And, and that, and that, that's what, what happens there. I rarely get like a real art critic patient. Uh, you know, <laughs> thankfully, uh, they even if the kid is very artistically inclined, and I I do work with some that are just way beyond uh, my skill level when it comes to art, they still appreciate that I did this strange little thing really quickly, and it amused them. You took umbrage in some ways with the with the genius tag. With your, I've noticed. So we talked about in the introduction that you were the resident cartoonist. But I saw you you had written an article and you were saying that you were the resident cartoonist, but neither 
of the first letters were capitalized. So the R and the C were not capitalized. So it was resident cartoonist. I'm assuming that that was intentional. And how does that fit into not taking yourself too seriously? So that's a point of controversy, Chris. Uh, yeah. I love it. We've got controversy. This is good. Depending on um, who's who's uh, representing me, if someone's writing about work that I do, I notice that the the capital letters are either there or they're not. And um, I don't, you know, it's, there's been no official proclamation about whether I should have the caps or not. Uh, I often use them, actually, I have to admit, if, but depending on the audience, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to in, inflate our, uh, myself too much uh, in the eyes of people that might say, well, wait a minute, we didn't create this position. <laughs> that is too funny. And and what about the seriousness? Are, do you find yourself taking yourself too seriously or not? No, I don't think I ever take myself too seriously. <laughs> and I, and I, I hang around with, with, with people that... Uh, also are really good at not taking themselves seriously, despite the fact that they're doing fantastic, wonderful, even miraculous things. So uh, I've got I've got mentors for that too. A lot of the kids that you're working with are kids with cancer, right? A certain per percentage of the kids I work with are in that category. Yeah, uh, not you know, not, it's not the majority of kids I work with, but but a lot of them are. Right. So the kids with cancer, the uh, the I mean, some of the some of the kids who've been dealing with like suicide and some of these mental health issues and different things like that. The cancer part was a connection. And I want to get into into talking a little bit about Diana at this point. Now, how did how did the dating process go with the two? Because you knew each other in college, right? We were uh passing acquaintances in college we did not know each other in college and that's uh it's part of our story that i i had uh uh an admiration and even there was some intrigue there like i would wanted to get to know diana in college but i never did i i the best i did was a hello here and there but that was about it could you describe what she what what she, what you saw of her in college I would see her um, as a as a student just walking across the green or whatever. She I could tell she uh, she was uh, she was a very upbeat person, cute uh, with a great smile, and that was one take I had on her. And and it was it was it was kind of a, a general knowledge that this was a woman with one leg. She had she had a, a prosthetic leg at the time, so she walked she walked uh, quite naturally with a with a bit of a hitch, but uh it's like okay that's you know that's who that is and then i saw her working out as an athlete um when the uh during the uh, the, the good weather season uh she trained close to where i i played baseball uh so close to the baseball field she was training on the uh the track around the, the football field and that was a whole different take on this this uh young woman i mean she was crazy i thought like hopping up the stadium stairs on one leg and back down and she ran with her crutches and it just looked like at any moment it was going to be a you know a, a, a wreck and yet she just kept going it was made a weird sound and i was fascinated by uh what she was doing uh as she pursued uh athletic excellence which 
as we know, she achieved. Exactly. And then when did you reconnect? So it was a passing knowledge of each other in college. When did you reconnect? Yeah, so it gets, this gets interesting because um, I, I had started, I had started working, uh, volunteering at first, and then I eventually uh, became a paid uh, element at the hospital as a cartoonist. And I got involved with a camp for kids with cancer as a volunteer. And then I, I, I heard that she had done a commencement speech at uh, a, a college, Rhode Island College here, here in uh, Rhode Island, obviously. And I thought like, oh, dang, she was, she was in Rhode Island. I could have found a way, you know, to get there. And I always wanted to meet her and talk to her. I was, you know, that, that fascination never, never ended. Uh, it's like, dang, I missed that shot. So, so I ended up uh, finding a way to contact her through her, uh, her agent, I guess, or her, her, her secretary, whatever she had. Um, I wanted to invite her to, to come to visit our camp, this uh, little cancer society camp that I was part of. And um, she couldn't do that. <laughs> she was she was doing much bigger things all over the world at the time. So I, I had a chance to talk to her briefly on the phone at that point and, and sort of you say, hey, we went to school together and, and I know you're doing wonderful things and these kids would really enjoy you know, spending some time with you. And she said, well, you know what, maybe you could talk to my manager and maybe we can make something happen. And the manager said, we can't, we can't do that. So that was, that was the, the pre-contact. And then in 1996, <clears throat> pure chance, I ran into her at a Halloween ball in Newport, Rhode Island. She was there with her, her brother and, and sister-in-law. And that was where I, I got the chance to, to make that, uh, that approach that I had, uh, perfected with other luminaries and just said, Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm who I am. I think I know who you are. Uh, can we talk? So hold on. This was a Halloween ball. What was she dressed as? What were you dressed as? Uh, so I was, uh, I was dressed as a giant, uh, as she, she later termed it fly knight. So I looked like a, a kind of a, a bedraggled medieval knight, but with a giant fly's head, which is hanging in my office here right now. And she was, uh, just a, a really elegant lady in a in a sleek black dress with long gloves and a big feathery mask. She wasn't she 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 got pulled to that to that event. She didn't want to go, but she she just dressed as a an elegant creature with a feathery mask. And so did the so the flying knight was successful in making this connection. Yeah, it was. Uh, but <laughs> but it made a it made a funny uh, lasting impression that that. Uh, turned into be a bit of a hitch for me when we finally got together because I had kind of built myself up a bit with shoulder pads and elevated shoes. So she had the impression of me being some like, you know, six two football player guy. When she finally met me, she was like, where's the where's the tall guy with the big shoulders? <laughs> Oh no. So did you start drawing at that point or or how did that work? Did I start drawing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, I gotta, I, I've gotta, I don't have the, the big shoulders and the height. So let me pull the other thing out of my bag that I have. Well, she she was really good at at uh looking past uh imperfections herself. So I, you know, I I registered as okay with her, even though I wasn't tall and as broad as she thought I was. That is hysterical. 
So when was when was the first date? How did this work? First encounter uh, that wasn't a date. Uh, she invited me to to rendezvous with her in Boston on a day when she was having uh, 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 a series of medical appointments regarding her her treatment for cancer. And so I met her at uh, Dana Farber and. I just pretty much killed time with her in waiting rooms between appointments and got to know her a little bit that way. And we ultimately went out uh, to get something to eat uh, after that, that day, which was a, a tough day for her because she got some bad news that day about uh, her prognosis and uh, you know what, what her disease was doing. Uh, it was a strange day in a lot of ways, a lot of emotions, uh, but that was our first real chance to get together. So your first get together, the, the cancer that took her leg has has effectively come back, right? Yes, it was a, a, a metastatic uh, situation where it uh, her her childhood cancer had had become. Uh, uh, Diana had a had a, a condition, uh, a, uh, a, a chromatic mutation that uh, has a name. It's it's, it's a syndrome, but uh, her her secondary cancer, which was breast cancer was in some ways medically predictable from her from her uh, childhood uh, uh, osteosarcoma. Uh, but it was the secondary cancer that she was in treatment for when I met her. And did she did she learn that that day or was that something that she had known that that she was going that she was predisposed to more cancer? She had an, an understanding of of uh, the possibility uh, but she had been diagnosed with the breast cancer long before we got together. It was a matter of plotting what they were going to do with the next steps of treatment. Uh, that's what she was looking at that day. Now, with with some of what you do now as the resident cartoonist, whether it's with a capital or or, or not a capital, is that informed in any way by some of the treatment that you went went to with Diana because because you guys would do some stuff that was a little bit out of the ordinary right going to treatments yes yeah we try to make it fun yeah um yes it, it informs me very much and it's an interesting thing Chris because I my my hospital time before I I really got together with Diana had given me some some experience some vocabulary of 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 the disease of cancer and it it made me, I think I earned some credit with her when it came to the, the medical setting. I knew something about navigating at least the, the, the vocabulary of the disease. And I understood a lot, a lot more than maybe someone who never had any uh, experience with it. But my hospital time, uh, which was about five years to that point, I had five years behind me, including some, some, some very powerful time with kids going through cancer uh, situations, it made me a, a, a better uh, mate when it came to facing something like that with her. And then the experience with Diana gave, gave me a real uh, education on, on treatment and the, the, the impact of treatment and managing the, the side effects of it all that, that I've been able to bring at least in a consciousness to the, to the time I spend at the hospital with other, with, with kids who have cancer and it makes me also, I think, uh, a little, little better at 
um, getting to know their parents and or the you know the, the loved ones that they have around them when it comes to what they're feeling as they watch someone go through this. What were some of the things that you guys did? Because this idea of fun doesn't seem like it fits with the idea of chemotherapy. Yeah, well, the 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 primary goal that Diana and I both had as a couple was to live the heck out of whatever amount of time we got together. The day that she was, the day that we had our first date, she was told that we're looking at maybe five years. If if we can do the best we can here, you might get five years. She she was aware of that, and um, the the goal was like, all right, let's 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 use treatment to to make sure that you are enabled to do as much as you possibly can with those five years, uh, and that's how the that was the, the the treatment strategy, and as a result, we we did all we did a lot of stuff, man. You you have some idea uh, what we did. Uh, we traveled extensively. We did physical things that she should not have been doing because she wanted to do them. And she like physical like, things, like what? What do you mean? Right off the top of my head, going to an amusement park where you know they had signs like, "If you have any of these things, don't do this ride." And she's like, "I don't care." <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, trail rides. To, uh, we took uh, cruises, but not like you know, sit back and enjoy yourself cruises, but like get in a raft and you know, go somewhere and hike a long way, you know, as part of the, the experience, stuff like that. Just living life as as fully as possible. Absolutely, that's what she was great at, and that's what uh, intrigued me in the first place about uh, about her. You mentioned that you had met at a costume party. You did costume stuff too at chemo, didn't you? Then you get dressed up in costumes. I mean, what what kind of looks were you getting as you're coming into in for treatment? I think the the general reaction was these two are not messing around. They're not they're not going to let cancer call the shots. I think that was the impression they got when they saw us walking in in costume or in character. Uh, they knew that Diana, in particular, was someone that was was all about defying the odds that were against her when it came to living fully. And if she wanted to dress up like a punk and show up for chemotherapy, uh, then they they understood that's what we're going to get today. You know, that's what she's going to be. Or if she showed up in an elegant gown for chemotherapy, then sorry, that's what she's going to do today because that's what she wants to do. Did it affect the other people? I'd imagine that it changed the tenor of the place. I mean, doctors, nurses, patients, families, as you mentioned, how much did that change? Because, I mean, it's it's a depressing kind of place that you're going to, right? How much did this change the tenor of the place? Yeah, well, it can, you know, it can be. It, 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 I guess this is a, an important piece of what I do, too. It, you know, the, when, you're, when you're dealing with cancer treatment, it can be uh, a down thing. But even in my experience, uh, the hospital I, where I work and the areas that I work, some of the most uplifting environments I know, you know, are the ones that involve treating kids for, for cancer. With Diana, she she brightened everything. You know, she walked in, they you knew she was in the room, in the house. As soon as she walked in, people started lighting up uh, because she had that effect. And if she came in dressed into some strange thing or, you know, came in uh ready to play a joke on her nurse or a doctor, they they were all on their guard, like, okay, something fun's gonna happen when she's here. Like, <laughs> this is, you know, we know what she's here for, but she's gonna make something happen. 
<laughs> to the point where people are actually looking forward to her coming in. I would imagine. I think so. I think that's fair to say. Uh, she, she, uh, yeah, she, she endeared herself uh, with her, her approach to what was a, you know, a very daunting uh, situation. And you are bringing that to a lot of these kids, whether cancer or other other issues. How do, how do you see that change? Because I always feel like there is this connection, isn't there, between kind of like the mental and emotional and the physical. And, and sometimes it's easy to separate the two and say, well, we're treating the physical part. But to give kids a, a hope, you know, a moment of happiness kind of thing. I mean, is that some of what you're, you feel like you are spreading? Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting thing, especially with more mature patients that I, that I, that I work with. I want them to know that I think it stinks that, that they are in the hospital for whatever they're in the hospital for. Like this, this stinks. But uh, since you're here and I'm here, let's so see what we can make it out of this because we don't have to just, you know, uh, submit to the fact that this, this, this is a crummy situation. We can do something. We can, you and I can become friends. We can share what we're interested in. I can draw silly things for you. I can teach you how to draw silly things. Uh, let's, let's do what we can with this. And in the, in the meantime, the really smart people who are taking care of you medically uh, are going to do what they can to fix this and and get you right and and i want to i want to hang around with you in the meantime so that's kind of my approach you have an interesting approach to teaching people how to draw you just mentioned i could teach you how to do this how did that approach hit you is this one of those oh wow i just see things differently now all of a sudden or how did it how did it work uh necessity proved her so once again, to be the mother of invention, uh, in the early days when I started working at the hospital, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. So I wanted to try to teach kids how to draw, but con using conventional language uh, don't, didn't seem to be working for a lot of kids. And, and I ran into a lot of kids who said straight up, I can't draw. I'm not an artist. My brother's an artist. I, I, don't, I don't do this stuff. So I, I wanted to try to pull things down to the simplest form that I could when it came to creating a, a cartoon. And I, I resorted to the alphabet and it wasn't an, un, an uncommon thing. Other artists had used simple shapes to, to help kids learn to draw things. But I thought the alphabet having 26 shapes or actually my alphabet has 24 shapes. Uh, w and M are the same shape and N and Z are. Uh, that, but that's a big palette, 24 shapes. And so I, I started asking kids not to draw, but to put letters where I told them to. And the way I instructed them, to, the letter could be backwards or upside down. Just do what I'm asking you to do and watch what happens. And, and that became my method. I call it cartoonograms. Uh, kids were confident, proving that they knew the alphabet. And by the end of a five minute lesson, they had drawn something and they didn't think they could before that. And that became my method, uh, how to teach kids using letters and a hint that goes along with letters to, to draw. Which is really cool because as you said, so many kids say, I can't draw, I can't do it. 
which is really about the way that you see things, right? I mean, it's not necessarily the physical dexterity. It's the way you're seeing what you're drawing. I kind of know this because I kind of I kind of learned how to draw and a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm certainly yeah. not not anywhere near your your status, but but at least it opened the opened the the door to being able to see how that worked. But going backwards, did you see because you'd you'd said that some of the other artists had used shapes and things like that. Did you did you see letters in stuff that you had drawn before or other people had drawn before? How did you how did you say, okay, that's a Z right there. That's a you know, I mean, 24, whatever it is, you know, how did that work to, to find it? Right. Well, at the beginning, it was, it was just a matter of, of, of figuring out shapes that I could, I could put together to make something simple, but, but satisfying happen. Uh, as time went on, you know, I have to admit, I, you know, I, I become a kind of a student of my own method. Um, it, it is fun for me to, to look at a potential subject and and start translating it into letters and it, most importantly into letters that can be built into a hint that will help you remember how to draw it so th that's become part of my work uh is is um that that translation of 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 uh in an image a cartoon image in, into component letters and then organizing it into something Part of the teaching I do right now, Chris, is uh, involves what I call academic art. I'm asked by teachers to create cartoonograms that apply to the the curriculum that they're teaching, and it's a challenge sometimes, you know, to come up with uh, a character that's relevant to the to the uh, the subject. I, I lecture while I'm teaching the drawing, but it's got to look right. It's got to look like you know something that's that's legit for the classroom, and um, the challenge is to, to 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 take take that image, whatever it is, it could be an astronomical thing or something, and turn it into letters, and then a hint that that helps you remember how to draw it. Well, and it and it's it's some serious learning too, right? Because you're talking about Shakespeare, you're talking about science, you're talking about you know some things that can be difficult to understand and difficult to process, and this is finding it's encompassing so much of learning so much of knowledge but also as you said with the drawings giving kids a sense of satisfaction and going from from creating something from creating something to what does that do to them afterwards after they've created after they've you know gained this sense of understanding does that help a transformation yeah, I think there is a transformation. I, I see a lot of kids who are surprised by the result. And I, by the way, part of my method is uh, perfection is ruled out. Uh, we we can strive for it, but we we have to understand it's not going to happen. Uh, and I take the pressure off for the performance, but I encourage the effort uh, that that they put into it. And that often results in a drawing that a kid is surprised by, like. A, you know, surprised, they're surprised that they did something that looks as good as it does. And in the process, I've, I've landed a lot of information uh, that uh, sticks to that memory of, of the drawing itself. It's, I mean, it really is about making it stick, isn't it? That's, that's the biggest challenge and the visual, the, the interactive and the knowledge all, all at once, which is just, 
is just amazing. So I want to get to the good night lights. Sure. I feel like we should have gotten to this earlier, but can you describe what good night lights is? Yeah. So good night lights is a, uh, a voluntary community project that involves people shining lights toward or for Hasbro Children's Hospital every night at 8.30 to wish kids good night. Its purpose is to make kids, families, and caregivers feel supported by a community around them, uh, to remind them that people are thinking about them, uh, are aware that they're in there going through something, and uh, give them something to look forward to in the course of a day and knowing that every night this will happen for five minutes. And the kids shine their lights too, right? Yes, it creates, uh, the project has created uh, a connection and interaction between the kids in the hospital and those sending the signal. So kids will either blink their room lights or use a flashlight to uh, signal back to people that are signaling their way. How did this start? So it started uh, uh, in, um, May of 2015, um, I was working with uh, a, a young man who I got, got to know over a few weeks. One, one of the things that, that uh, bothers me, Chris, is that sometimes I, I form friendships and, uh, and, and good, strong ones with kids that I work with at the hospital. And then they're discharged. And even here in this little tiny state of Rhode Island, you're not, you never can be too sure if you're ever gonna see someone again. And it's, it's a strange moment where you say like, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. I, I kind of hope I never see you again, meaning in the hospital, but but I hope I do see you. And one of the one of the things that I wanted to try to do, and I, you know, I used to use just words to do it was remind let a kid know that you know what, I'm gonna still be thinking about you. We're gonna we're gonna stay connected even when I'm out of here, you're out of here. Our connection will continue. And the night, this particular night with this young man, um, it just struck me because of the view he had out of his out of his room from the hospital. I could send a signal to him using my bike light. If he looked at the right spot, you know, on the road uh, that I was taking out of there to see it. And that night it worked uh, the way I hoped it would. I turned my bike around, shine the light and this kid was very smart. He he used his room lights to to light his window up, and and I realized right there my hair stood up. It's like okay, I just made a cool connection from outside the hospital with a kid, and I think I made I think we made the point here. Like you know we're still we're still connected, even though you know this something has got between us. Uh, this was a way to 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 maintain a connection beyond the walls of the hospital. How did it end up growing? Did other kids in the hospital join in? How did how did it grow from that interaction between the two of you? That night, uh, I got thinking like, all right, that was cool. I want to do that again, and uh, and it was wasn't hard to make make happen. So it became a a thing for a while where I would kids that especially patients that were long term patients, oncology patients often. Um, I would say, hey, listen, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be headed out. I'm gonna be over there. If you look out your your window, um, when I'm at my bus stop, I, at the time I was taking the bus home, uh, I I would just take my flashlight from the bus stop and shine it toward the hospital. And kids who knew I was there, and it could be three or four kids on a particular night, 
I'd see little sparkles of light from their, you know, parents' cell phones or the room lights would blink. So it was kind of like a thing I was doing for for a few years until I I thought maybe maybe other people might want to do this too because I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, maybe it could become a thing. So I started talking about it and ultimately invited the public to become involved. How do you go about inviting the public to be involved? <laughs> that sounds, you, you made something that's probably relatively time consuming, sound really very simple. Hasbro Children's Hospital has a wonderful prospect, uh, uh, a view toward the city of Providence, the city of East Providence. I just, I started identifying businesses and locations that I thought could become signaling elements uh, for for this idea I had. So I, I literally approached businesses and said, listen, you've got a, a light on top of your building. Is there any way that that could blink for a minute uh, at 8.30 for the kids at the hospital? And it, the reaction was universally like, well, okay, you know what, a minute? No, I think we can make something happen. And I approached a, a police department across the river from the hospital and talked to the chief, got somebody I knew, say, hey, I got this idea. Could you send a, you know, a patrol car, you know, at 8.30, the one that's, whoever's in the neighborhood there, just, just have them light the lights up. And I think kids would appreciate it. And I said, yeah, we could, we could do something like that. And that particular chief, by the way, sent 11 cars the first night he did it. And, <laughs> and they all have their lights going, their lights on the cars going. He saw the potential right away that this could be a cool thing, you know, not just for the kids, but for his, his department. Uh, just people caught on really quickly. So my what I, I just kept identifying businesses or groups that I thought would be interested in becoming part of such a thing. And then once it got some attention, some uh, publicity, it, be, it gained uh, momentum quickly to become a, a real community effort. Is that astonishing to you or does it make perfect sense? I mean, we live in such a, you know, in a lot of ways, we live in such a bifurcated, disparate world where I have my opinion, you have your opinion, that kind of thing. But a lot of people joined into essentially the the essence of life and celebrating life. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, it, it elates me, I have to admit that the success of the of the of the project has been beyond what I could have projected, but I wasn't I wasn't putting any limits on the projections. I just didn't see it doing what it's doing. But I think everybody's got something in them that wants to, to do something good for someone else. And when it comes to kids that are hospitalized, it, you know, it hits deeper into the heart for most people. It's like, oh, God, I wish I could do something for them. This makes it easy. Uh, you, all you got to do is blink a light, shine a light that way. Use your headlights. If you've got a business, put a, a light in the window that will come on at a certain time. This is an easy easy thing to do that will make you feel great especially if you can see the response or even hear it from from kids that have that have witnessed this you realize it makes a difference it does it uh, it, it raises hope it, it uh can take stress away it gives people kids and the parents something to look forward to you know on a day that could be a drag you know something cool is going to happen at 8 30. that's the interesting message that you know, you start off doing something for somebody else, but there's such a return for you just in terms of, of how it makes you feel to help these kids out and to 
and to effectively move forward, these things happen in, in small increments. It's when you were when you were talking about your mentors earlier, there was something that both of them said to you that that really sort of applies here to this growing of something that's so much bigger than than all of you. Do you do you remember what what they said to you and 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 is that a part of who you are moving forward? Well, you know, it, interestingly, uh, yeah, I thought about it uh, till right now, but um, but the, the the main message from my my initial mentors uh, was persistence, and as you know, Diana made a career around the theme of of persistence, uh, and I think that is in, informative about you know why I might end up with someone. Uh, like that, and by the way, uh, just just uh, to mention, I am married to another person who who also is is um, motivated. My wife Susan is a is a very strong per person who stays with it and and keeps working toward uh, a goal. Um, and I think I like being around those kind of people. And uh, the message was supported by by. People had an early influence on me. Um, if it's a good idea, stick with it and keep 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 it moving forward to where it can go. Even if you don't know if there's a there's a solid, uh, you know, finish line or checkered flag for where it's going. I don't know where it's going. Like the Good Night Lights project, I you know I have dreams. Literally, I have dreams where there are thousands of lights, uh, you know, in the city of Providence lighting up. That we don't have that yet, uh, but. I don't know. I can get close to it by the time I'm done. And people can go to your website and buy t-shirts as well, right? <laughs> nice job, Chris. <laughs> this is a merchandising plug. But but it really fits, though, too. I mean, people can help out and be a part of this whole movement. In all seriousness, uh, the, the shirts, uh, there's a Good Night Lights t-shirt. There is an official Good Night Lights t-shirt. It's a great shirt. Glows in the dark. Uh, one of the things I love most about it, it's got a quote on the back. Uh, it's from a, a, a friend I made at the hospital, a young man who, who passed, uh, a, a cancer a cancer patient. Very smart guy, guy that was looking for a chance to become a useful, supportive part of society in this country. He had dreams about, about doing wonderful things uh, in, in the service of other people. He was asked about Good Night Lights one night uh, or one day in, in an interview, and it was actually uh, recorded, which is which is wonderful. Edwin Rivera was his name, and on the back of those shirts, it has this quote which says, uh, "The world is not as dark a place as you may think it is. Every light counts." And th this shirt, to me, is my way of paying tribute to uh, that friendship with. A remarkable kid that that didn't get a chance to 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 realize his goals about how he could contribute and help people and support people. Uh, so the the shirts, you know, it's just a t-shirt uh, to a lot of people, but to me, it, it it's a lot more. It's it carries a lot, and and the project itself it represents is working toward that goal of of helping to support people going through a tough time and getting them pulling them through with hope to a better place. And the collective part, right? That every light counts and that all of us coming together make a 
far bigger light and then the world isn't nearly as dark as we might think it is so yeah yeah it was a brilliant moment this this was an unrehearsed extemporaneous quote this kid issued this young man issued uh but boy uh it's profound and and i i I've adopted it as as part of my my theme for this project. Yeah, well, I would imagine that that is not the only profound thing that you've heard from the kids as you are the resident cartoonist. You're probably learning more more than the kids are as you're putting them at ease and and helping them through a difficult time. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's always my pleasure, sir, when I get together with you. We've, uh, we, we tend to have a good time when we do. <laughs> we most definitely do. Well, thank you so much and keep doing, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's such a huge benefit to all of us. So thank you so much. And, yeah. Thank you for the privilege of being part of this. And, and please continue to do what you're doing. Because uh, if, if I can, uh, you know, self-gloss here, I think we have something in common when it, uh, when, what our goals in life are. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in, that there'll be another great guest next week. Uh, please like us, please follow us, and we will do our best to give you great content, great stories, and great people. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.